You're listening to a sermon from Metro North Church in Goose Creek, South Carolina. If you'd like to connect with us, then visit us online at metronorthchurch.com. If you're a guest today, we don't have our lives together, but God does. And he loves to speak to us. If I haven't personally met you, I'm one of the leaders here. We're in a series that we call Life with a capital L about the Ten Commandments. Why are we gathering to go over Ten Commands that most of us probably already know and we don't want to break? Well, this was a series designed to actually change the way you think about God's law. I want to give you a question. See how you'd answer it. What came first for the Israelites? Did they obey God's law perfectly and then get rescued? Or did they get rescued and then were given the law to obey? I wonder how you'd answer that. The answer is that they were liberated by God before they did anything. The liberation came before the law. Many of us here treat the law of God like the track coach that says, jump over this high bar, and he keeps making it higher and higher and higher, and you know you can't jump over it, and you are tired of being shamed for not getting over that high bar. But what if the law was seen differently? What if Christ already jumped over the high bar? What if he's already rescued you because of what he's done? And now he gives you these ten laws that give us life. Would you stand out of honor for God? And we're going to read a very short eighth command. Imagine being there, two million Israelites. God breaks the silence of 430 years with ten commands, and here is his eighth command. He says to his people who have been set free, you shall not steal. Would you pray with me? Father, there's not a person here that hasn't heard this before, and yet your spirit spoke through Moses so long ago to teach the people about life. Father, you're an amazing dad who provides for us. Please provide your spirit like never before and set our hearts on fire to love you and others, even as we seek to obey this command. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. I wonder if you would know what the three top items that people shoplift are. Tell somebody on your left or right what you think one of them might be. What do people in America shoplift? Tell somebody next to you. Let's see if you get one of the three. The top item that Americans shoplift would be this, steak or meat. Did anybody get that, by the way? Who are... Cameron, way to go. Cameron used to be a Goose Creek police officer. Oh, boy. We've been found out. Here's the second thing, according to businessinsurance.org. Razors. You ever go to Walmart? They've got them locked up. And number three, okay, parents, grandparents, baby formula. Baby formula. Yeah, even Suburbans with kids are walking off. Now, I thought, okay, most of us shop at Dollar Dollar Tree, Dollar Store. What's the most taken item there? It's Tide Pods. Something about grabbing those things, 
We are a nation that shoplifts, and some researchers have theorized that shoplifting, why do we do it? It's this unconscious attempt to make up for a past loss. We deeply want security, significance, and we sneak a lot of stuff to fill the hole in our hearts. You know, there's three common misbeliefs that fuel the dark secrets of those of us who steal or shoplift. Number one is this, everybody at some time or another has shoplifted, therefore it's okay for me to do. Misbelief number two, shoplifting is a crime, but it's not a major crime. Misbelief number three, I must have the item I want. If I want it, I should have it. Now, that's entitlement. We have a culture of entitlement. The title today is simply, Don't Mug Me. Don't Mug Me. Have you ever had something stolen from you? I can remember when our children were young, we had one of those big old video camcorders and we put the cassette in and I captured every moment of every burp and fart and step. And I came home after working a night shift in the ER and I noticed that one of our screens was bent. I walked in the house, someone had stolen the video recorder and the cassette. I felt violated. I felt victimized. I was so angry. Have you ever experienced this? My burden today is your pastor. And if you're a guest today, my burden even for you is I think we often live our lives saying, God, I'll love you if you give me this. God, I'll love you if you give me that. Here's the problem. Whatever you really love is actually on the other side of your if. Because you're saying God is not enough. Oh, that's a burden. Is there good news? Those misbeliefs that fuel shoplifting, there are three beliefs that will help you experience a life with a capital L. Number one is this. God says in this command, number one, no matter what, you must never steal from anyone. Exodus 20.15. It's only two words in Hebrew. I want you just to simply say this long verse out loud. Would you read it with me? What does God say? Never steal. You just memorized a verse of the Scripture. Never steal. Why do we label so many of our sports teams, though, with this label? You ever heard of the Steelers? Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, that's a foul. The Pittsburgh Steelers, that's their steal. You know the original name of the Pittsburgh Steelers? They were the Pittsburgh Pirates. Here's another team. My in-laws are here, San Francisco 49er fans. You've heard of the Raiders? Or we've even got a local college team right here. What's our local college team called? The Buccaneers. That means they're pirates. Now, take that word buccaneer and stick it to the side, because it's going to come up again in the story of God. But our local university has as their mascot a buccaneer, a pirate, someone who will steal from you. We love to label these, these teams, and then we label people, right? What do we call someone who steals? A crook. A crooked. 
an outlaw, a burglar. Who is God talking to when he says, never steal? In the Hebrew, what is used is the second person singular. Now listen closely. The second person singular means that when God is addressing a crowd, he's not addressing the entire crowd. Second person singular is you, personal. God looks at two million people, and surely he looks right into the eyes of one person and says, you never steal. It's as if you were in here, and I could get a spotlight, and it would go right over you to Avery. You never steal. God does not generalize with this command. He uses in the Hebrew the second person singular. He says, you never steal. Oh, this is kind of, whoo, this is getting personal. Back row, you never steal. Studies reveal that 89% of Americans deny that they've ever stole. 89%. And yet, research reports consistently that 80% of people will shoplift in their lifetime. According to the Global Retail Theft Barometer, in 2014, Americans alone stole 37 billion worth of stuff. You ever bought stuff in the checkout, self-checkout line? The Atlantic just ran an article in March where they asked 2,500 people, have you ever shoplifted in that line? 20% said yes, and most of them did it with what's called the banana trick. Now, I'm going to share this. I don't want you to go out and use this. <laughs> How could 20% of Americans go through that self-checkout? Well, what they do is they grab the T-bone steak, $13.99 a pound, but they put the code in for the cheap banana of 49 cents. The police won't even deal with this because they say a law is not going to fix people. The average shoplifter first did it at the age of 10. And shoplifting tends to peak in adolescence and declines and people of all races shoplift. It's not a racial thing. And did you know that poor people shoplift only slightly more than the rich? Men tend to shoplift using knapsacks and women using strollers. Have you though, you, have you in the middle row there, have you ever stolen anything? I, for me, this is a personal thing. Because if I scroll back in my memories, my earliest memory of guilt was when I, your pastor, shoplifted. Mom went into a store. Mom always saw shop opportunities everywhere. Drags me in, and I went over to one of these circular women's dress racks, and I just hid in there. What else am I to do? I'm bored stiff. I'm five. But there it was, dangling from a woman's dress on the zipper. It was the size of a shiny nickel, a coin. And I looked at it, and I said, that's going to be mine. And I sneaked out. I looked at mom. She was shopping. I'm working it loose, working it loose. I grabbed it, pocketed it, went home, stuck it into a little treasure chest. Every night I'd take it out and I would just look at it, my glorious coin. My dad came in and said, Howard, I've been noticing each night you keep looking at this coin. Where did you get it? Dad, I noticed what I did. I'd already stolen, but I very simply moved from becoming a stealer to a liar. Dad, I found it. <laughs> really, where? 
I don't even remember. It was one of my first moments, though, of feeling guilt. I stepped over the line. And shame. Because in my relationship with my dad, I was hiding. God loves us and says, you, you, never steal. Never. Just two words. It's like the bang, bang of a gun. But those little bullets, when they get inside of you, explode. Never steal. The first word, never. Absolutely prohibited. Steal is the Hebrew word, go nab. I think God was having fun with that one. Don't go nabbing things from people. What does that mean? It means to take something by stealth. See, when we steal, we hide. We don't typically go out the self-check line and do the banana trick and tell somebody. We take it by stealth. We rip somebody off. We take someone else's property. And who do we steal from? It's interesting. Never steal. It doesn't tell us. In the Hebrew language, you could end something in a way where the object is ambiguous. It's undefinable to really make you think. Never steal from anyone. We can supply that definitely. It means initially don't steal from anyone. And you go, well, Howard, what is the big deal? Here's the big deal. If you mug somebody, and think about that term right there. Our mug is our face, all right? I got an ugly mug. When you mug a human being who is the image of God, who has stuff, you are mugging God. A person's private property is their property. When you strike them in the face and you harm the glory of their images, when they took my cassette of the images of my children, they were mugging me. Never steal. Because we don't live in a socialist or communist world. We have private property. It's really ours. And our possessions matter. That's why some of you, when you go to jail or when you go into the hospital because you're sick and your possessions are stripped from you, you feel so depersonalized. Some of you are hoarders. I kind of get that. Because we were created to have and care for things. But what God's saying here is, when everything belongs to everyone, then nothing belongs to anyone. Our stuff matters. Go ahead and grab your neighbor's cell phone on the way out. Oh, they're going to notice it, and they're not going to like it. Never steal. I wouldn't do that, Howard. I think I'm actually part of that little percentile that has never done it. Okay, so you've never stole something tangible. Have you ever stolen something intangible? Like someone's dignity by gossiping. Have you ever stole the spotlight in a social, social situation, making yourself the center of attention? I do that. I'll come into a group. I love people. Paul, you're talking to somebody like Mabel, and I'll just, woo, I'll steal your thunder. Mabel, you got to know about me. That is stealing. Those of you that play video games, I love a good video game. But when mom has chores that need to be done, or grandma is there and you can talk to her, maybe even in the game, are you stealing? Oh, this is an interesting question. In the Old Testament, we have all types of people that steal. And you'll always notice a pattern. The thief treats God as part of their life, never the root of their life. Remember Jericho? 
the walls that came tumbling down, and there was a man named Achan who saw a shop opportunity to shoplift. He grabs a jacket, he grabs some silver and a bar of gold, and he hides it. Remember David who commits adultery, kills Uriah? Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him a story because David doesn't really care that he's the person who stole. And Nathan says there was a guy who was really rich. He went to a guy who was really poor, and he stole his little lamb. David gets so mad, he goes, that thief deserves to die. And Nathan goes, you are that man. Oh, there's stories. But wait, you say, Howard, those are Old Testament laws. Jesus has come. Okay, fine. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul paints a mural of grace. It is in the background. It is beautiful. But in chapter 4, he addresses Christians, and he says this. Would you read it with me? Read this out loud with me. Thieves must quit stealing. And instead, they must work hard. They should do something good with their hands so that they'll have something to share with those in need. Yeah, this side of the cross, there was a congregation in Ephesus where Paul had the guts after talking about grace to say, thieves, you got to stop stealing. Never steal. Quit stealing. Bang, bang. It's so quick. It's so personal. Quit stealing. Notice that in the New Testament, though, we have this beautiful statement, quit stealing, but then he flips it, work hard and share. There's no neutral gear when you're a Christian between stealing and sharing. You're either a thief or you're a generous person. We read earlier this Heidelberg question, what does God require in the commandment? And if we can put it up again, he requires that you've got to promote your neighbor's good. Work faithfully. You remember Judas, one of the followers of Jesus? He was labeled a thief. Let me read to you what it says in John 12. He's all talking all spiritual one day, Judas, but he said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He did not care for the poor. He instead helped himself with money. There's only really two ways for us to get stuff in life. Number one is a gift or an inheritance, but number two, and it's most of your life, you got to work for it. Mostly hard work. How many days did God command a human being to work? Six days. Now, you think about this. You in the third row, think about this question. You over there, Tracy, think about this question. David, you personally, I want you to think about this question. Not everybody. God doesn't address everybody with stealing. He addresses you. How many days a week are we commanded to work? Six. Now, I texted one of my mathematical friends and said, what percent of our life, if we work six, is six out of seven? And he texted back this number. Eighty-six percent of our life. I thought we had a number up there. 86% of our life should be hard work. Could you honestly say that's true of your life? Do you work creatively 86% of your week? If you do, I hope it's not two-dimensional. I work for my stuff. When you meet God in Christ, the goal of hard work is that you share your stuff with others. Life becomes three-dimensional. I work 
for my money to give to others. Do you slack off at work? I know this is tricky because some of your workplaces just want results. Some of your workplaces don't mind if you get on Facebook. This is tricky, but listen to me. Your employer hires you to work hard. Can you say before God, most of my time is productive? How much non-productive time do you bring to the workplace? Do you surf that web? Okay, the first point was long, but it's personal. Never steal from who? It's ambiguous from anyone. Here's the second one, though. We can also supply this second point. Never steal from God. Uh-oh. Where and when did we first steal from God? Well, you remember the story, don't you, Christian? Those of you that have been following Christ, you remember this. In the garden, Satan would steal away Adam and Eve's robe of innocence, tempting them to question God's goodness. Let me read it to you to remind you. Genesis 3, the woman answered the snake, We're allowed to eat the fruit from any tree in the garden except the tree in the middle. Remember that. The middle of the garden, the woman saw that the tree had fruit that was good to eat, nice to look at, and desirable for making someone wise, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Imagine yourself personally back in that garden paradise. The tree they were not to take from was where? In the middle Trees are funny things. They have no front or back. Anywhere they walked in the garden, they would hit the tree. Anywhere. I got all this stuff and I can't take that. I got all this stuff, but I can't take that. You ever think about this? Before any sin was in the world, in the middle of the garden was this circular, beautiful, luscious tree that they weren't allowed to take from. daily reminding them that they can't have it all. Your reach exceeds your grasp. If we get right down to the heart of the matter, don't you think that when they looked at that tree and they took from that tree and they stole from that tree, they already believed God was good, just like you. But they didn't believe God was good enough. Oh, this gets me. So many of you, 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 it's not that you don't believe God doesn't exist. Give me a break. You just don't believe he's good enough to provide for you. For our security, for our significance. Could doubt be the skeleton in your closet of faith? Never steal from who? From anybody. Never steal from God. God, where in the scriptures does it ever say that we'd steal from you? Other than that old story, which don't have nothing to do with me. Okay, let's go to the end of the Old Testament. Let's go to the people of God, set free, given the laws. Let's read what God says. It's painful. Malachi says it this way. Will a man rob God? Get out of here. Yet you're robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse. Now, this is tricky again theologically, 
because we don't live in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, if you do the math, they usually had to give 20% of their money. A lot of it would go to national taxes. But there was a minimum of 10 that went to the temple, that went to the people of God. It took care of the, the priest. It took care of the kingdom. And God is saying, and I hope you hear this today, even though this is tricky, come on, 10% of your stuff, give it to the kingdom to advance me. We bank our money to buy security. But our money is God's and we're his managers. Jesus has come, by the way. How much more should we give to his church to advance his mission? Should we give less than 10%? Wouldn't you think we would want to give more? Out of joy and cheer because of the cross. Wouldn't you think we would want to give more? Because we live in the richest, one of the richest countries of the world. I invite you to wrestle with this. Wrestle with God on this. He says you are robbing me by not giving a full tithe and contributions. I want to just say, I am amazed during our year of give. The eyes of my soul have popped wide open because we have asked you as a church family to give for the future vision of Christ's kingdom. And you have pledged $500,000. My eyes of my soul are popped open like, what? Come on, we're a bunch of average people. And for the last couple of years, you've been giving more. But I wonder, is anybody here robbing God? Christian Smith and Michael Emerson are just sociologists. Did a big study looking at giving. It's called passing the plate. Look it up. They don't chide or condemn. They're sociologists. They watch how we live. American Christians, they have found out, give an average of 2.9%. Let me say it again so you guys can wake up. We are one of the richest countries in the world, and sociologists, not trying to condemn, are asking the questions, how well does the Christian give? We're giving 2.9%. Woo! goodness. Survey data over the span of 20 years shows that 20% of Americans, and yeah, the Protestants and the Catholics are all included, 20% give zero. Why don't we give more money? They say the problem goes deep. It's not because they don't have the means to give or the knowledge to give or the understanding of the Bible from their preachers. Two things. Number one, Americans act and think poor despite their, despite their affluence because they've succumbed, succumbed to this consumerist inducement to go deeply into debt and to spend almost all that you have on luxury items. Most of you that do not give a tithe to this church would say, Howard, I don't got the money because you have succumbed to this American thought. Secondly, they say a deeper cultural current of expressive individualism makes American Christians resist claims to their personal freedom put on them by the church. The expressive side of a person in America pushes against any proactive planning about one's giving. Americans, they say, prefer to give as I feel led. You ever heard that? You will not find that in the Bible. Oh, I want to give to the kingdom through Metro North, but I got to feel led. No, that's your American expressive individualism. They say it this way. 
people do not like to pledge and budget their money to something like a home that they care for because they'd rather have the freedom to express life their way. You can say, that's really guilt-inducing, Howard. Guilt's not going to fix this. In fact, there were a lot of people that were stealing, and you can hear this on the podcast called Criminal, in March of 2017 in an episode called Trassic Park. People were stealing, hundreds of people, petrified wood from the petrified national forest. They'd get home and they'd feel guilty, and they would send in letters of guilt. Here's one of them. They weigh like a ton of bricks on my conscience. Sorry. Here's another one from somebody, probably a kid who stole this petrified wood. Please accept my apologies. To whoever it may concern, I'm returning this rock and the bad luck that followed it. Since I've had it, my bike has been stolen, my feet have blisters, and they're as big as my hand, and now my side hurts and might be a hernia. And worst of all, me and my girlfriend are about to break up. Please accept my apologies and these pieces of petrified wood. Now, the forest thought, let's take the letters and let's post them and people won't steal. But they posted the letters and the stealing has increased. Okay, never steal. It's personal, CC. Never steal. It's personal. It, is that Kevin? It's personal. It is personal. Never steal from anybody. Never steal from God. And we got one example, at least, on how we do it. But the guilt won't fix this. Number three, you must never steal as you trust in the riches of Christ alone. Exodus 20, 15, never steal. Let's look at Jesus. Matthew 27, 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right, one on the left. Remember I told you earlier on, do you remember those buccaneers? Eric, you're over, you work at CSU. You work for a place that has buccaneers, pirates. Interesting. The robbers on the left and the right of our Savior, if you look in one of the greatest Greek lexicons, called the Liddell Scott lexicon, the robber was a buccaneer. These were pirates. Three-fourths of our planet is water. These were guys that were under no national authority. They would go out in a boat and they would take from you. And they're hanging next to Jesus. Two buccaneers, two thieves, hanging next to Jesus. They lived their life taking. And the only time these two takers ever gave was when they gave Jesus ripping insults. Verse 44 says, in the same way the robbers, the buccaneers who were crucified with him, they heaped insults on Jesus. He's dying up there for our sins and he's getting ripped to shreds. He's getting mugged. Jesus was the central thief. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus was the central thief. He was hanging up there for you. You, personally. You. For your thievery, he was hanging on that cross. And it says in verse 41 to 43, one of these guys says, we're getting what we deserve, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus says to one of these pirates, one of the pirates says to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus said to him, I can guarantee you this truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. 
It's the same place where that middle tree always, oh, that can't have it. You'll be with me there, but I will be there. You're looking at me on a tree. You don't got to take from that other tree anymore. I'm in the middle. I'm the middle tree. How, Jesus, this buccaneer, this pirate, how? Jesus, the central thief, would steal the robber's sins away. Remember me, Jesus, not as a robber risen on a cross in shame who lowered myself to stuff for significance and security. Jesus says, I will never remember you as a thief because I'm right now stealing your sins and dispensing the guarantee of grace in a relationship with me forever in the garden paradise of God. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here's the gospel. Some of you just need to hear this today. It's as simple as this. You cannot steal that which is freely given. I don't want to lose you. This is a thinker. You cannot steal that which is freely given. God gives you his only son. Why would you ever steal again? You cannot steal that which is freely given. This image of Jean Valjean getting the candlesticks from the bishop. Some of you, do you know this story? Victor Hugo wrote Les Mis, and there's an escaped prisoner, or a prisoner set free who had stole, and he gets free hospitality from a bishop, a Christian, and he steals in the middle of the night all the silver, and the cops bring him back to the bishop, and the bishop gives him not just mercy but grace and says to the cops, he forgot his candlesticks. Now, a lot of you know that, and you go, that's cool. But most of you have never read the next chapter because what the man did after he was given not only mercy, not only grace, and most of you already know about the riches of Christ on the cross. And you'll go out this week and you'll steal. Tangibles and intangibles. In the next chapter, read it. This man goes out and he goes over to a little kid and he steals a nickel from a child. He does not know how to live life. He's been given the candlesticks. He's been given the silver. He's been given mercy and grace. And Victor Hugo writes these really powerful words. After he stole the nickel from the boy, he says it this way in the book. The thief was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of the priest was the greatest assault and the most formidable attack which had moved him yet, that a struggle, a colossal and final struggle had been begun between his viciousness and the goodness of that man. See, that Jean Valjean had to say, this bishop who has been so affected by Christ is giving me grace. Will I now live graciously? Can I get personal? Can I get personal? Todd, you on the back row. Can I get personal? Jason, have you allowed Jesus to steal your sins away? Have you received his righteous record? Oh, Ephesians, it's beautiful. Let, let me end by just simply reading another verse from Ephesians. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. I go back in time to that crazy little treasure chest with my little nickel. But I'm starting to go back and realize that I don't need a treasure chest because I have Christ. Let's have our elders come forward in our worship team. Let me pray. Father, my earliest feeling of guilt was stealing. And my present feeling of grace is that your son is my treasure. But Lord, as I pastor this flock, I hope they don't walk out feeling like I... I just condemned them for not tithing. Lord, would they walk out today sustained by this meal of your son who died to give us life? And Lord, some of us do need to change. We are robbing you. Father, you are our treasure. Your son is our treasure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.